Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Kim C. I teach beginning, intermediate, and advanced university fiction, and this is my one-woman Stephen King podcast, where I break down and analyze the Stephen King titles that don't get a lot of sunshine. And today, it's especially bright and shining in the formerly gray world of Empress, because we're continuing our Stephen King fantasy exploration with a distillation of 2022's fairy tale. Alright boys and girls, there are many thoughts and many feelings on this novel, but we're going to take a quick moment to start with positivity and gratitude as I stare at my brand new hardcover copy of Holly that was released around two weeks ago. Let's start with how grateful I am that the soon-to-be 76-year-old Stephen King gave us an incredible outlier of a novel to digest that is fairy tale. That's what we're going to break down in today's episode. But I just want to celebrate that he's still writing. Oh my gosh, friends, there are still works to discuss, and that alone is worth taking a moment and praising from the rooftops because it's a miracle, everybody. It's a sheer miracle. And what a kindness that at his age, in these golden years, we're still getting king titles. He's still writing for you and for me. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I wanted to start there because it's so important we practice gratitude. Each king title, no matter what it is, is a dang gift to us all. Truly an undeserved gift from a very kind man and a brilliant creative to all of us. So thank you, Steve. On with the show, friends. There is a lot of charm in this novel, a heck of a lot of creativity, and the most world-building I've encountered this side of the Dark Tower in my personal King journey thus far, which a few days ago I did a little county count of all my titles, and guys, I'm at 49 King titles which I'm pretty proud of myself. That's a nice dent for 10 years. I could definitely pick up the pace a little bit, but I'm glad where we're at. Still have a long way to go. But this is a story that aside from the tower has the most amount of world-building exploration and I absolutely love it because if you've been listening to the show a while, it's often a complaint I have with some of King's works, especially those with sci-fi inclinations, He always leaves me wanting a little more to the point where it becomes a weak spot in the narrative for me. But I feel, finally, amazingly, we don't have that in this title. Not at all. More on that later. The novel Fairy Tale continues our Fantasy King exploration that we started a few months back with the eyes of the dragon. Oh, I really enjoyed that one, guys. Lovely writing, very intriguing simplicity. And the whole story, for me, is very much like a spritz of pleasant perfume where it's gone far too soon, but definitely lingers in the mind. If you haven't read it, please spend some time with it. Very worth it. So with that in mind, aside from The Dark Tower, I believe the only other fantasy title, we've got The Eyes of the Dragon, now Fairy Tale. And I know for a fact that the compilation written with Peter Straub, that is The Talisman and its sequel Black House, is fantasy as well. I do have plans to read Talisman and Black House, but I'm saving the compilation novels for the end of my King journey. I know, guys, I know, but it's a whole can of worms for me when you have someone else's literary style mixing with King's. 
I am not a reader that just focuses on plot. I focus on the whole dang house and I'm not quite ready to go there yet. So those are on the back burner for a little while later, for someday. But for today, it's fairy tale time. And I think, as we'll explore in this episode, we're going to unearth some evidence that King's fantasy outputs are somewhat stronger than his sci-fi. At least that's where the evidence lies. When it came to some of the press surrounding this novel before it was released, this is a title that King was said to have written during COVID, and as a matter of fact, it was. This was composed November 2020 until February 2022, so about a year and change. It wasn't exactly in the lockdown portion of that fabulous year that was the pandemic, but he said he wrote it, quote, to feel better, end quote. And that really seals it for me, folks. There's a lot of power in that statement, especially when, not that I want to, but when we take a quick glimpse back at all we've endured, to know that this was a story that brought him joy after everything that had gone down is a really powerful aspect to this story. I really like it a lot. So when we go about the route of describing this novel, this is a boy and his dog story. This is a fantasy adventure nomad story that calls on the hero's journey, and it seems to have magically taken shape as King was writing it, as that's what his writing style dictates. As we've discussed on this program, King is a novel explorer and story pioneer, rather than a plotter and a planner, which makes this novel, for me, very unique. Some critics said that they didn't get enough world building in this story, we didn't get enough time in this other place, but my guys, I was flabbergasted by how much we did get! Whoa! Typical Steve stories, I'm hunting for the bare minimum, the tiniest crumb and crust of bread, and here we are, friends, we have 400 pages. Holy hell! That's a lot for me. 400 pages of pure fantastical world building. I was more than satisfied. We're going to talk about pacing and whether or not said world building was executed well, but I can't get over how much we got. I'm a satisfied customer. Don't know about y'all, but I'm thrilled with the massive buffet spread we were provided with the novel fairy tale. As you guys might have heard at the end of my Shining episode, I gave a little sneak preview and said that I really enjoyed the first two thirds of this novel, but not really the last third. And I think I'm going to hold true to that, but we'll reveal more on why that is as we explore. But firstly, I should begin with what a huge fairy tale fan I am in general, as in classic fairy tales. Hans Christian Andersen, Charles Perrault, the Brothers Grimm, and when I was in elementary school, I got super into Greek and Norse mythology because if you're hunting in your local library, they often have illustrated children's editions with all the X-rated stuff cut out. It wasn't until later that I followed up on said stories and learned what really went down, but as a kid, I was so obsessed with them, I checked out the same books all the time, over and over again, literally every week. I was also a Disney kid as well, so mythology, fairy tales, it really is no wonder I wanted to creative writing and teaching fiction because it was really the sustenance of my young soul, but I digress. This story is full of charm, 
and feel-good moments, and I do believe that it is one that will require multiple readings. When I closed the book and I kind of just let it wash over me and I thought about the whole story beginning to end, I really believe fairy tale is a prime contender for being potentially underrated down the road because I've talked to folks and no one who I've met, and we're talking seasoned constant readers, guys, very, very long time King fans, very few of them who I have chatted with have said that they loved it. They liked it. They enjoyed certain parts. Some of them really did not like it and were a little upset by it. Not a lot of those people, but there were a few. So overall, I can tell this is a king book not everyone is raving about, and that's where we come in, my friends. This is where the year of underrated Stephen King likes to reside. This is the gray area. The second I finished this book and I just sat there with the hard copy in my hands, I knew that the way I felt, which was strange, slightly delighted, slightly perplexed, slightly problematic, this would be a novel that needs time. This needs a little bit more time in the barrel, ladies and gentlemen. This needs to age a bit and sit on the shelf for a while. And I'll circle back to that idea here in a little bit, but for now, let's dive in with our analysis. If you are new to the show, this is what we do. We begin this novel exploration by starting with what's working. So we're gonna look at areas of strength, areas we really like because that's what you always do in fiction workshops. We always begin with the good stuff. Next, we're gonna take a look at our characters. We'll investigate which heroes, villains, and honorable mentions we have. We'll also select a portion of the text to read and discuss. And then we're gonna transition into criticism and questions of which I have a few. I do my very, very best to avoid spoilers, but please watch out, my guys. It's a really good idea if you've recently read Fairy Tale or listened to the audiobook not that long ago because I don't want to ruin anything for you. And sometimes when I get a little excited, stuff absolutely flies out of my mouth and I'm really sorry about that. So just a heads up. My chosen text was the 607 page American hardcover edition. I read this novel alongside the audiobook of which I really enjoyed, Seth Numrich. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. I could have butchered it. But he is absolutely grand, and he narrated the audiobook of Later, which is a 2020 hard case crime title I'm obsessed with. I super love that story so much. I'm a huge hard case crime fan in general, but he did a great job with Later, and he does a wonderful job with Fairy Tale. So please check out his version of Fairy Tale to enhance your reading experience. If you're into that, highly recommend. And now, let's get into our summary. In Centuries Rest, Illinois, Charlie Reed is a 17-year-old all-American teenager plugged into classes, sports, and girls. While biking near the historic district of town, a barking dog grabs his attention. The dog's owner, cranky and elderly Adrian Bowditch, has taken a bad fall. While Bowditch recovers in the hospital, Charlie is entrusted with caring for the seasoned German shepherd named Radar. Charlie enjoys looking after the dog and hanging inside the very eccentric house. But outside the house is what gets Charlie's attention. Before his death, Bowditch tells young Charlie that inside the shed is a gateway to another world. With Radar by his side, 
Charlie heads down, down, down stone steps into this new world, a world of blue skies, enticing aromas, and a desperate community seemingly under a dark spell. This is a world of gold, monsters, mermaids, night wolves, giants, and a place where the impossible is possible and saving radar is in Charlie's grasp. All right, lovies, we've got our gold and radar's leash in hand. Let's head down the stone steps and begin this episode exploring 2022's fairy tale. Let's start the show. Good sirs and madams, welcome to Empus. This is the strength section exploring 2022's fairy tale. I've got about three categories, maybe four if we have time, but I want to start this section by taking us to a class on campus. We're going to be big time lords and ladies stalking the halls and heading to mythology class for a few minutes. Maybe intro to folklore or comparative cultural studies, perhaps, but I gotta get nerdy for a quick second, because even though this seems like a really sweet little dessert of a story, it's actually quite powerful in regards to the playbook it pulls from, and I really wanted to highlight that playbook to all of you really quick. Attention all of my creatives and all of my writers, if you are a dabbler in fiction, if you have some ideas bumping around your brain like a lot of my students. This is a really, really important topic, and Fairy Tale is the perfect story to talk about it. I might have mentioned in the intro the hero's journey. And before we get into it, we do have to mention the very famous, very well-known scholar, Joseph Campbell. Hopefully you're all familiar with Mr. Campbell, especially if you're a Star Wars fan. But Mr. Campbell was an academic, a literature professor at Sarah Lawrence, and then he kind of stumbled into research, which led him into the field of myth and religious studies. And he started traveling all over, learning all these folk tales through different cultures, different tribes, all the myths and legends he was learning about. He wrote them all down and distilled that a lot of these stories can all be funneled into a formula called the hero's journey. 
He cited a lot of psychologists. Carl Jung is somebody who he referenced quite a bit. For any of you psych majors out there, it's really interesting stuff. He examined anthropological studies, lots of research, under the theory that all stories are basically derived from one formula. He called it the monomyth which unites all of them together no matter where the story comes from. So naturally, this sounds amazing, and it was, and Joseph Campbell's publications got a lot of attention and press because apparently Mr. George Lucas was so inspired by Campbell's theories when he was writing Star Wars, the rest is history. So I'm gonna quickly talk about all 12 steps of the hero's journey, and as I do, I want you to have Luke Skywalker in mind maybe the plot of Wizard of Oz, and heck, this novel fairy tale. I want you to have Charlie Reed in your mind when I go over these steps. So once more, if you are a fiction person or if you're somebody who says, I have a really great story in my mind, but I really struggle with plot, the steps of the hero's journey are going to help you so, so much. They always bring my students a lot of insight when we talk about the hero's journey, And Charlie's adventure through Empus is the perfect platform to discuss this model. Here we go. We have three acts, and for act one, step one, ordinary world. This is where the hero exists before his present story begins. Oblivious of the adventures to come, it's his safe place, his everyday life where we learn crucial details about our hero, his true nature, capabilities, and outlook on life. So remember, young Charlie Reed biking around town. We, of course, do get some beautiful character building with Charlie's early life. More on that in the next section. Step two, the call to adventure. The hero's adventure begins when he receives a call to action, such as a direct threat to his safety, his family, his way of life, or to the peace of the community in which he lives. It may not be as dramatic as a gunshot, but simply a phone call or a conversation, but whatever the call is, and however it manifests itself, it ultimately disrupts the comfort of the hero's ordinary world and presents a challenge or quest that must be undertaken. Number three, refusal of the call. Although the hero may be eager to accept the quest, at this stage he will have fears that need overcoming, Second thoughts are even deep personal doubts as to whether or not he is up to the challenge. When this happens, the hero will refuse the call and as a result, may suffer. Number four, meeting the mentor. At this crucial turning point where the hero desperately needs guidance, he meets a mentor figure who gives him something he needs. He could be given an object of great importance, insight into the dilemma he faces, wise advice, practical training, or even self-confidence. Whatever the mentor provides the hero with, it serves to dispel his doubts and fears and give him the strength and courage to begin his quest. Side note, let's go to A New Hope, one of my favorite Star Wars films personally. I take that back, it's actually Return of the Jedi. But I love in A New Hope, this step, step four, would be the part where Luke is talking to Ben Kenobi in the cave. He sees a lightsaber for the first time. Here's the name Darth Vader mentioned. This is all that. Step four, going down with Ben Kenobi and Luke Skywalker. This would also be the time in our novel where Charlie Reed gets this wonderful tape from Mr. Bowditch, which has some very telling info. Step five, crossing the threshold. The hero is now ready to act upon his call to adventure and truly begin his quest 
whether it be physical, spiritual, or emotional. He may go willingly, or he may be pushed, but either way, he finally crosses the threshold between the world he is familiar with and that which he is not. We literally cross that threshold on our way to Empus, down, down, down the stone steps, the opposite of the beanstalk. Instead of climbing up, we go down. So much fun. This leads us into Act 2. We're halfway through the steps, my guys. Act 2. Step 6. Tests, Allies, Enemies. Now finally out of his comfort zone, the hero is confronted with an ever more difficult series of challenges that test him in a variety of ways. Obstacles are thrown across his path. Whether they be physical hurdles or people bent on thwarting his progress, the hero must overcome each challenge he is presented while on the journey towards his ultimate goal. Let's think about all the citizens of Empus that cross Charlie's path and give him an immense amount of assistance along the way. Step 7. Approach to the Inmost Cave The Inmost Cave may represent many things in the hero's story, such as an actual location in which lies a terrible danger, or an inner conflict which up until now the hero has not had to face. As the hero approaches the cave, he must make final preparations before taking that final leap into the great unknown. Step 8. Ordeal The supreme ordeal may be a dangerous physical test or a deep inner crisis that our hero must face in order to survive or for the world in which our hero lives to continue to exist. Whether it be facing his greatest fear or most deadly foe, the hero must draw upon all of his skills and his experiences gathered upon the path to the inmost cave in order to overcome his most difficult challenge. Act 3. The final turn. Three more steps. Step 9. Reward. Seizing the sword. After defeating the enemy, surviving death, and finally overcoming his greatest personal challenge, the hero is ultimately transformed into a new state, emerging from battle as a stronger person and often with a prize. Number 10. The Road Back This stage in the hero's journey represents a reverse echo of the call to adventure in which the hero had to cross the first threshold. Now he must return home with his reward, but this time the anticipation of danger is replaced with that of a claim, and perhaps vindication, absolution, or even exoneration. Step 11. Resurrection This is the climax in which the hero must have his final and most dangerous encounter with death. The final battle also represents something far greater than the hero's own existence, with its outcome having far-reaching consequences to his ordinary world and the lives of those he left behind. Number 12. The last step! We did it! Return with the elixir. This is the final stage of the hero's journey in which he returns home to his ordinary world a changed man. He will have grown as a person, learned many things, faced terrible dangers and even death, but now looks forward to the start of a new life. His return may bring fresh hope to those he left behind, a direct solution to their problems, or perhaps a new perspective for everyone to consider. All right, listeners, that concludes the 12 steps of the hero's journey. And hold the phone! Isn't that this entire novel, guys? It is! Start to finish! I love it! King absolutely followed the playbook of the hero's journey. It's immensely successful, especially for me, acts one and two. 
the third act, more on that later, got some issues, but ultimately, the hero's journey is concluded in a beautiful and succinct way. This is such an amazing tool, and I'm so glad that we really see King utilizing it. I doubt he took a look at each and every step. I think he's just a natural storyteller by this point, and all of this falls into place without him having to reference anything. But if you guys are writers out there, or creatives, filmmakers, and you haven't heard of Joseph Campbell's monomyth or the hero's journey, please reference it ASAP. It's something I talk about in my classes all the dang time. It's a really beautiful way looking at an adventure story, creating a compelling narrative, building characters, and especially if you struggle with plot. I've noticed that this really helps a good deal. So one of the strengths for me within Fairy Tale is that King references, or seems to reference, and allows the writing to embody the hero's journey almost step for step. It's beautiful. It's classic, it's timeless, and I really, really enjoyed seeing it in this narrative. Number two, world building. As I kind of mentioned in our intro, I'm freaking out, guys. Holy hell, we have a dump truck full of stuff, full of amazing details. Here are some of the world building details that we get, and I'm absolutely blown away. Here are my little subcategories. Firstly, the Kingdom of Empus. This is a whole nother world, seemingly a medieval kind of society, very soaked in traditional fairy tale as we come to find out. That was the inspiration King was working with. Mother Goose kind of stuff, more on that later. But we have strong setting details and lots of sensory details, friends. Scents, textures, tastes, lots of food is eaten, this is definitely a nomadic kind of plot. Charlie is moving around, he's observing the customs. Within this world, a curse has been placed upon the people. People have literal gray skin, deformed features. They are often missing features that have to do with the five senses. So someone might be missing the ability to speak, to hear, to see. So when the reader arrives in Empus, there's a lot of lovely, beautiful stuff around, very reminiscent of The Wizard of Oz, which I believe King likes to utilize quite a bit in his writing, especially if you take a look at the Dark Tower book 4, Wizard and Glass. Wizard of Oz is absolutely everywhere in that, it's wonderful, and I think King references it again in this novel. We have a field of red poppies, much like Dorothy sees on her way to Emerald City. The poppies in Wizard of Oz, of course, make you very sleepy, but in Empus, they smell like chocolate. It is beautiful. There are monarch butterflies everywhere. Oh my gosh, guys, the animal life, the animal life. We have huge monarch butterflies, which actually seem to be a totem of Empus, especially in Lillimar Castle. Butterflies are everywhere, on flags, on statues, and they themselves seem to be everywhere, the physical creatures. Butterflies everywhere. We also have night wolves. Within this novel, we have a new language called Empisarian. It seems to be a little bit old English style. And what's really interesting is in this novel, it latches on to your current language and will morph the way you speak. So fascinating, guys. So Charlie will say he heard a person say a certain phrase, so he translates it in his contemporary English, 
but then realizes that that's not how he heard it in his head, that it changed and it was something different. So it's not a completely different language with different roots from English, of course, it's just different expressions. The colloquialisms are very, very different. It's older, more traditional, more formal, but what's wild is it'll just automatically morph your own tongue. It'll morph your comprehension of what's being said automatically. You don't have to do anything. So if you go to Empest, you'll just start talking like them. And when you hear them, you'll hear it in a way that you'll just understand what they mean automatically. You don't have to do anything. Super cool. The other wild world-building feature is people. We don't really have a greater example other than Charlie himself, but he seems to have a physical transformation once in Empus. His eye color changes, his hair color, the language as we mentioned, of course. So I don't know if this is a isolated incident because it is said that Charlie might be a prophetic prince who was promised, so might not be something we can attribute to all guests, but we'll just throw it in here for right now. He actually physically changes. Charlie is said to have dark brown hair. He is blonde by the end of the story. He has blue eyes by the end of the story. He is transforming to fit this world. He is being assimilated by it very calmly, very subtly, until he looks in a mirror and is like, I'm not who I am. We definitely have some beautiful locations, as I mentioned. We have a castle, Lillimar Castle, Deep Maline, which is inside the belly of the castle. I think it's Lillimar. It might be somewhere else. It gets a little wild there in the third act. But Deep Maline is kind of a glamorous Mines of Moria for my loader people out there. Probably not as deep or expansive, but it's a big old dungeon that he spends a lot of time inside. We have Skeletor-esque skull creatures that are kind of these muscle soldier guys. If you're thinking of palace guards, think of Skeletor from He-Man. I know that might be a stretch for Gen Z, but please Google it. It was a cartoon in the 80s. As a matter of fact, I was a baby when He-Man was popping off, so I really shouldn't reference that, but I love 80s pop culture, so I will. But I was recently born, fresh from the oven, when He-Man was on TV. So I don't know. I shouldn't have knowledge of it, but I do from reruns. But Skeletor is the evil big bad. And I couldn't help but think about Skeletor when I was reading about these palace guards, very Skeletor-esque. We've got dwarves, we have mermaids, we have giants, we have the whole enchilada, my friends. We have cognizant insect messengers, so all of the animal life seem to have, according to the text, they're aware, they are conscious, they have the ability to speak, sort of, without revealing too much about the plot, and we also have a very rich backstory of the royal galleon family. King creates an entire royal family. We meet Princess Leah of the Galleon. She has a magical connection to Empus, as does her entire family. The Galleon family are very important. Think of the Romanovs in Russia, they're pretty iconic, and there's a lot of tragedy that befalls them, much like the Romanov family. We learn that Leah is the youngest of seven children, and she and her youngest brother, Eldin, more on that guy later, 
They were always alone and wandering the castle, and it is Elden who really transforms the story. But in this adventure, we have the roots of this royal family and an archetypal damsel with the character of Leah, who demonstrates later in the story she's a very capable and powerful leader. She's dead set on taking her kingdom back. We have a very rich lore. We've got a beautiful royal family history presented to the reader. It really makes Empus so much more grounded. When we look at the curse on the people, when we take into account all that's going down in these locations, there's been a lot of tragedy, there's been a lot of abandonment of these former, very popular, populated cities and suburbs, something really bad has gone down, and King lays that as his foundation for Charlie walking into this world. Sensory details everywhere, guys. As I mentioned, just food, clothes, textures, sights, smells. I'm just blown away. There's so much here. Wow. For King, I was, I was so thrilled. Whether or not you think it works or if you're okay with the story, let's take a minute to admire the kitchen sink he threw at this. Details, lore, backstory, visuals, setting, details, details, details. I am thrilled. So that is a huge strength for me, friends. The world building within Fairy Tale. Three, the magical and dramatic plot. I know we talked earlier about the hero's journey, and it's so integral to making this plot absolutely kick-ass, and that's what it is, guys. I love the plot in this story. It anchors the reader, because what we have at the heart of fairy tale are some beautiful tropes. We have Charlie as a boy, he's got his dog, we've got the elderly benefactor trope that I absolutely love. It's featured in several of my favorite Stephen King stories, and I was just talking with my friend Matt from Tower Junkies on one of my favorite novellas, Mr. Harrigan's Phone, that has the elderly benefactor trope. I love it within King's work. So we have that again with Adrian Bowditch, who has this extra special knowledge about Empus. He has been there before. He's done a lot of stuff in Empus. He's made a lot of friends. He's got a lot of secrets. And before he kicks the bucket, he tells Charlie, hey, this place exists. You got to go down there. You have an opportunity to plug in with some amazing power. And so I'm going to give you that before I head out. Also, I got a lot of gold you can have as well. It's just so good. Not only is that trope featured in Mr. Harrigan's phone, it's also in Low Men in Yellow Coats, my other favorite novella. Hopefully you guys all love it as well. We also have it in a beautiful short story called Cookie Jar, which is found within the Bazaar of Bad Dreams. So if you are a huge fan of the elderly benefactor trope, oh my god, we've got some glorious iterations of that. But what's really beautiful about this plot, aside from the magical and the fantastical that we have, is Charlie is a young adult character who we meet at the beginning of this novel who's encountered a lot of loss, which is another powerful King character exploration. Charlie lost his mother at a young age, and so he's, in a way, trying to fight loss at every step of his life. This makes him a very bold and brave individual, and so in this plot, Charlie is consistently doing the right thing or the best and strongest thing to stop loss from happening. And it really carries me through the entire story. There were definitely lulls in the narrative, especially toward that third act, but I kept going. I kept going, especially 
when we realize as the reader that radar's in trouble. And I'm a huge animal lover, I'm sure a lot of us are out there. King really lays it on very, very thick that fighting for radar and animals is worth everything. Very, very powerful. So I was extremely pleased when I look at the plot within Fairy Tale. Lots of fun stuff going on. It carried me through. I might have one or two things to say in our criticism section about the third act. Prepare for it. But overall, extremely pleased. To recap on our strengths, we have all 12 steps of the hero's journey, acts 1, 2, and 3. It's done beautifully within this novel. Number two, world building. Holy crap, we have an overstuffed moving van full of details. Oh man, I'm so... I've never seen this much in all 49 King titles, my friends. I've never seen this much. It might exist in a title I haven't read yet. If so, let me know. Please write into the show and tell me. Give me a sneak peek. But hold the phone! I've never seen so much! It's rich. I feel completely satisfied with this world he has built. I felt immersed in it. I felt like it was real. I could touch it. I could taste it. I could see it. That's what you want. Bravo, Steve. Wow. Really, really lovely. I was incredibly pleased that we've never had this much before. I will debate you with this. Granted, if I haven't read the book, I can't really debate you. But (laughs) in 49 King titles... We gotta take a look that this is a lot, a lot, a lot, all caps. Okay, I'm really loving it. And lastly, the magical and dramatic plot. We've got boy and his dog trope, elderly benefactor, hero's journey, the symbol of the mother is everywhere. If you look at all of the female characters that Charlie encounters, lots of maternal influence, which makes the plot even stronger due to Charlie's loss of his own mother. We got beautiful, powerful stuff going on here, guys. So now that we've talked about my three favorite areas of strength, into the castle we go. We got a sundial to find in our next section, exploring the characters of 2022's fairy tale. Grab Radar's cart and the snacks from Dora, and I'll see you in our next section. Welcome one and all to Lillimar Castle. This is the section of the episode showcasing the characters from 2022's fairy tale. 
I know I've mentioned a few folks already, but this section highlights our characters under the headings of heroes, villains, and honorable mentions. And every now and again, sometimes we get a problem child, but we don't have any of those today. However, the child, sort of, <laughs> the teenager I would like to begin with today, our hero of heroes is, of course, our narrator and main protagonist, Charlie Reed. The narrative takes place in 2013, making Charlie 17 years old, born in 1996. At the conclusion of the novel, Charlie is 27-28, so we have about 10 years go by from the events of the story until the very end, more on that in a little bit. Charlie is definitely a Gen Z, but King gives him some delightful old soul characteristics that I really enjoy. He is a fan of the TCM channel, Turner Classic Movies, lots of amazing films on there. I think King himself is a huge fan of TCM, so it works well with Charlie's character that this is something he and his dad participate in. But our character of Charlie, of course, as I mentioned in previous sections, lost his mother at a very young age. I believe it's, gosh, he must have been about five or six. And his father started heavily drinking after that, and because of that tumultuous environment, Charlie was a little bit of a bad kid up until he started to turn it around once his father got sober, right around the time he entered high school. We have mentioned that he was very violent, he caused a lot of damage, a lot of vandalism, general tomfoolery and mischief making because he was in pain. King does not lean into this too much, but it is apparent. And I'm glad that this is added to Charlie's character because he is really good. It makes so much sense that he's our hero. He just is always doing the right thing. He does well in school. He does well in sports. And he honestly kind of reminds me of Dennis from Christine, if you guys remember that narrative. Arnie Cunningham's best buddy. Dennis is just the it boy. He is handsome. He is talented. He's nice to Arnie. He's just the best all the time, every day. Charlie Reed is comparable in that way. Super talented, 6'4", I'm assuming handsome. Smart, likes to read, likes old movies. This guy's a star. I would have definitely had a huge crush on him. So I like that we do have this time in his life where he was really the bad kid. And I think it's important. It's a really interesting aspect of Charlie's character that he was able to turn it around once his home life started to improve. But ultimately, Charlie is a sweet, good kid with a very open heart. He does the right thing consistently, he makes the right choices, kind, polite, just a really good kid, and we enjoy him. We enjoy what he's passionate about, we cheer for him, we are worried for him. He's a lovely narrator, and I'm really happy that he's our main character. From Charlie, I do need to talk about Charlie's dad. I don't know why I don't have a name written down in my notes. Sometimes I miss things, sometimes I forget. But after the death of his wife, Janie, Charlie's dad definitely spirals into severe alcohol abuse where Charlie is exposed to a lot of it. He's cleaning up after his dad. He's seeing his dad intoxicated night after night after night. His dad is, of course, laid off from his job, perhaps even fired from his job because of his alcoholism. 
There's a little bit of real drama and pain surrounding the character of Charlie's dad. However, there is a miracle, quite literally a miracle early on in the novel, when Charlie's dad starts to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. He receives a really great sponsor, someone who's very dedicated and devoted, and it definitely pulls Charlie's dad out of the rut. He gets on his feet again, he starts working for himself, he has his own business selling insurance, and Charlie kind of has this epiphany that because he prayed to God to heal his dad, his prayer was answered, and therefore he has a debt to repay. Hence the plot that goes into motion, I love the plot so much. But after we sort of pass that very bumpy time in Charlie's early adolescence when his dad is heavily drinking, Charlie's dad really makes a 180 and it's so nice to see. It's really nice to see a kind of fractured home repair itself to the best of its ability. And we do get to see that with Charlie and his dad. Their bond is very strong. Charlie's dad really tells him, hey, you need to do well in school. College is absolutely going to happen. Do your best in athletics. And Charlie is so happy that his dad is no longer drinking that he's just going to go all in on the opposite side as well. He's going to excel. He's going to work hard. He's going to do his best. So I really, really enjoy Charlie and Charlie's dad. Our third main character is Howard slash Adrian Bowditch. We find out that Adrian is his first slash original name. I won't go too into that because I don't want to reveal too much about the magical associations there. But Howard is the name that he first uses when he introduces himself to Charlie. Adrian is, of course, the very wealthy, very cranky recluse who lives in the old house in the historic district of town, the spooky house that's known as the Psycho House, It gives me reminders of the Marston house from Salem's Lot, that big looming mansion staring over the town. This is kind of similar, but Adrian Bowditch is just cranky, 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 quirky, but he has a huge soft spot for his one and only love, Radar the dog. Anything concerning Radar, he is absolutely a puddle. He's so worried about her. He's so nervous. He wants Radar taken care of no matter what. He doesn't care about himself. All he cares about is Radar. So that's an aspect of Mr. Bowditch that we really enjoy. And then toward the early first act, we do find out that Howard Bowditch is not exactly what he seems. And there's a lot of secrets in that old spooky house. There's a lot that he needs to tell Charlie before he leaves this world. But I love him because he represents that elderly benefactor trope that I mentioned. Even though he's not as nice as the other gentlemen that we see throughout King's Tales, he's not a Mr. Harrigan, he's not a Ted Brodigan, those guys are nice. For the most part, Mr. Harrigan's nice. He was never ever cruel to Craig in Mr. Harrigan's phone, not that I recall, not that I thought. Mr. Bowditch is a little crankier. I would say he's probably the crankiest one we have. But then once he starts to trust Charlie, and once he sees that Radar really likes Charlie, he definitely relaxes a bit and realizes that he actually really needs Charlie's help. And if he wants to get done what he needs to get done, then he better have Charlie as an ally. He's a really interesting individual. I do wish we kind of had more from Mr. Bowditch. 
we find out that he does have a very strong association with Empus. That's where a lot of his fortune has come from. He's built a lot of relationships. But other than a couple clues here and there inside of Empus, we don't really know much else, which is a little sad. It seems that Mr. Bowditch was kind of a solo bachelor, only really wants to have his dog Radar or a pet to take care of wasn't really into marriage or children. I didn't write down any notes if there was a reason for that, if something happened in Empus to prevent that. I don't think that happened. I would have wrote that down. It just seems that Mr. Bowditch was completely content being by himself in his old house, liking what he likes, which was old movies and old tech, and he had his dog, and that's all he needed. He was fine getting his groceries delivered and not having any friends and just, yeah, he was completely content with that. So a little bit more on the cranky side in terms of some of the senior citizens we have exhibited in the elderly benefactor role, but I really do like that he does, in fact, benefit Charlie immensely with the secrets he possesses about Empus. He has to tell him, he has to let him know, hey, that shed in my yard is no ordinary shed. It's a doorway to this other world and I need you to go there. Really, really good stuff. Lots of good potential with Mr. Bowditch. Once more, I do wish there was just a little bit more. A little romance, a little bit of something there, Steve. No? Okay, so that's Adrian Bowditch. Our last character that I want to talk about is our sweet baby Radar. She is a German Shepherd. She's about 16 years old in human years, and when we meet her, she's doing all right, but her health is in decline, which is a major plot point. It's one of the reasons why I enjoy the plot so much is suddenly it all becomes about this precious doggy that just walked into Charlie's life, unexpectedly created this huge bond with him, and we have two gentlemen who really love her. She's a good dog, she's very protective, she's just getting on in years and her health is declining and she's been given some very bad news by the vet. The plot is in motion to see if something could be done about that. Radar is a huge, lovely character in this novel. She's a great symbol throughout this adventure. She's almost like a talismanic glowing orb of everything for Radar. We have to do it for Radar. So she becomes larger than life, this dog. And in Empus, Charlie has to kind of cart her around because she can't walk. And it really starts to go south for her. Radar really pulls at the heartstrings, ladies and gentlemen. If you are somebody who really can't handle dog perishing right now, fear not. That's all I'll say. But Radar's presence in the story is so warming. I'm so happy about it. It's sweet, it's simplistic, and some would argue maybe it's a little derivative, maybe it's a little rudimentary. Oh, it's just a dog. No! She's so much more than just a dog, and King really sees to that, so I love it. Those are our four main characters within Fairy Tale. And I did want to mention really quick, like a quick crop dusting of some of the Empus characters. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these because I don't want to ruin it. There's a lot of secrets and magic within the world of Empus, and I don't want to crack that open in the episode too much, but I will mention them. 
We've got Christopher Polly, who's a mischief maker. He is very short in stature, and one could compare him to Rumpelstiltskin a little bit. Next, we have Princess Leah of the Galleon, the Galleon family, who I mentioned in our last section. We have Dora. Dora is really great. She is a cobbler, and her profession as a cobbler is a huge aspect of the story. We've got Woody, Claudia, Hannah, who is a villain, who is not a good character at all. And lastly, we have Elden. All of these people live in Empus only. They never exist outside of Empus. They have very layered attributes to them that link up to some of the fairy tales that King is exploring. I'm going to talk about those in our next section in greater detail. But yes, lots of Empus folk. I am forgetting somebody. Peterkin. That's right. <laughs> Peterkin and Christopher Polly kind of confused me a little bit. I will mention that in the criticism section, so we won't go too in-depth here. But yes, these people are all individuals who assist Charlie on his journey. They are integral to his survival in Empus. They are allies, they are friends, and they are charming portraits within this world of Empus. I don't want to reveal too many details about them because there is magic in there, guys. I want you to discover the magic for yourselves. And if you have already read the novel, you know that these people are very special to Charlie's journey and that these people definitely need his help. These are people who are not doing well personally due to the curse over Empus. So Charlie is definitely pushed to try and figure out a way to help them and stop this big bad who has caused so much pain and suffering within Empus. So to recap, we have 17-year-old Charlie Reed who is 28 at the end of the novel. He's our Gen Z, sweet, handsome, well-rounded, good guy, American teen. Very, very similar to Dennis from Christine. However, I have a little issue with Dennis. Perhaps I shouldn't use that comparison too much. Charlie seems like 100% good guy. Dennis was probably like an 85% good guy because he did some shady stuff to Arnie with Arnie's girlfriend. You guys remember? I wasn't really down with that. But anyway, a little bit of Dennis in there. Charlie is definitely way better, in my opinion. We've got Charlie's dad, who overcame alcoholism, got on his feet, really stepped up, and became a very strong single dad for Charlie. We have Howard slash Adrian Bowditch, our elderly benefactor, our cranky, cantankerous recluse, who super loves his dog, Radar, and has a lot of money from mysterious sources. And lastly, we have Radar, the German Shepherd. She is getting on in human years, even more so in dog years, definitely loves her owner and loves Charlie, and she really becomes a totem for this story. And I'm really, really glad she's in the narrative. Our additional Empus folks, Christopher Polly and Peterkin, Leah of the Galleon, Dora, Woody, Claudia, Hannah, and Eldon. Before we head out of here, I did want to read a small excerpt from the text. We have a very charming narrator with Charlie. He is, of course, 17, and I love this portion of the novel because he's breaking the fourth wall a little bit. He's kind of talking directly to the reader, which I like. 
And we get to see a lot of his thought process. We get to also connect with this unknown future narrator. And at that point in the story, we don't know how old he is, where he's reporting from, what life looks like. So it's really intriguing. I definitely took pause at the section I'm about to read because I thought it was really cool. I thought it was very strong and it made me want to keep going. This section can be found in the American hardcover shortly after chapter 12. It begins on page 204. You may have gotten a pretty good feeling about young Charlie Reed by this point. I'd guess, sort of like a hero in one of those YA adventure novels. I'm the kid who stuck with my father when he was drinking, cleaned up his vomit, prayed for his recovery on his knees, and actually got what he prayed for. I'm the kid who saved an old man when he fell off a ladder trying to clean the gutters. The kid who went to visit him in the hospital and then took care of him when he came home. Who fell in love with the old guy's faithful dog and the faithful dog fell in love with him. I strapped a 45 and braved a dark corridor, not to mention the giant wildlife therein, and came out in another world, where I made friends with an old lady with a damaged face who collected shoes. I'm the kid who overpowered Mr. Heinrich's killer by cleverly dumping gold pellets all over the floor so he'd lose his balance and fall down. Gosh, I even played two varsity sports. Strong and tall, no acne, perfect, right? Only I was also the kid who put firecrackers in mailboxes, blowing up what might have been somebody's important mail. I was the kid who smeared dog shit on the windshield of Mr. Dowdy's car and squeezed Elmer's glue in the ignition slot of Mrs. Kendrick's old Ford wagon when Bertie and I found it unlocked. I pushed over gravestones, I shoplifted. Bertie Bird was with me on all those expeditions and it was the Birdman who phoned in the bomb threat, but I didn't stop him. There were other things that I'm not gonna tell you because I'm too ashamed. All I'll say is that we scared some little kids so bad they cried and pissed themselves. Not so nice, right? And I was mad at this little man and his dirty corduroy pants and his Nike warm-up jacket and his clotted, greasy hair falling over the brow of his narrow weasel's face. I was mad, of course, because he would have killed me once he had the gold. He'd already killed once, so why not? I was mad because if he had killed me, the cops, possibly led by Detective Gleason and his intrepid sidekicks, Officers Whitmark and Cooper, would have entered the shed in the course of their investigations and found something that would have made the murder of Charles McGee Reed look piddling in comparison. I was maddest of all, you may not believe this, but I swear it's true, because the little man's intrusion made everything more difficult. Was I supposed to report him to the police? That would lead to the gold being discovered, and that would lead to about 10 zillion questions. Even if I picked it all back up and put it in the safe, Mr. Haha would tell them. Maybe to get some consideration from the district attorney, maybe just out of spite. The solution to my problem was obvious. If he was dead, he couldn't tell anyone anything. Assuming Mrs. Richland's ears weren't as sharp as her eyes, and the two gunshots really had been very loud, the police wouldn't have to come. I even had a place to hide the body didn't I? I really like that portion. It's really kind of a summation of everything that's gone down this far. It's frenzied, it's a little bit manic, and for once Charlie doesn't know all the answers, he's a little uncertain. I found it very charming. So the following phrase definitely made me laugh throughout the novel, but if you've read the book you know what it means and it's legit and I'm not crazy. But, <laughs> hum pump kitties, into the dungeons of Deep Moline we go. I'll see you in our last section.
Boys and girls, we've made our great escape from Hannah the Giant. We are back on the road to our friends, heading into the criticism and question section of 2022's fairy tale. I feel for the most part I've maintained throughout this episode that I like fairy tale, but I don't love it. My hope is, is that some of these issues can be resolved over time. I hope in the future I might feel differently about some of the categories I'm going to bring to your attention. Maybe they just need time. Maybe in a couple years when I do a full reread, all the things I'm going to be a brat about will just smooth right over. No qualms about it. That's my hope. But for right now, presently, I have a couple issues. And please know that I've taken into account what a strange and outlier novel this is for King. It's something I celebrate. I love that we have an absolutely experimental, fantastical, magical, whimsical tale completely out of left field. This is a pandemic escape book. I love it for that. There are so many things that I celebrate about this novel, but I do have a few categories to share with you because maybe you felt the same on your reading journey. That's my hope. Maybe I'm not alone. Maybe I'm not crazy. And the first category is called after chapter 19. Okay, so we have 32 chapters in this novel, but after chapter 19, coincidentally, for whatever reason, my friends, the plot really loses steam for me. And now, overall, I really do enjoy the plot, and that's why I listed it as a strength, but something happens after chapter 19. Because in chapter 18, we have a huge beyond huge milestone, a really big plot arc, and it has to do a lot with Radar. And up until chapter 18, Charlie's love for this dog, his devotion to Mr. Bowditch's wish, all of that drove the plot of Charlie plugging into the hero's journey, leaving his ordinary world, going into Empus, all the people he meets are allies on this quest, and Radar is at the center point of all of that. And by chapter 18, without revealing too much, Radar is all good. That's all good. And that driving force, that energy and that urgency, it really kind of dissipates for me. In chapter 19, Charlie and Radar get separated, Charlie gets captured, and then for the next 13 chapters, the narrative really goes to a very strange place and... For whatever reason, friends, it just didn't stick to me as the narrative did in the first 19 chapters. I'm trying to figure it out, but it just was not as strong. Charlie gets imprisoned, and he's kind of forced to fight in a battle royale kind of way that reminds me of the gunslinger when Roland had to fight court with David the Hawk. I love David. But in this section of the novel, King, you know... <laughs> Charlie's imprisoned with all of these random Empisarian guys, like 30 names are getting thrown at us. Every sentence, we're hearing like 18 people's names, and there are several sentences where Charlie's narration says, I know you're getting a lot of names thrown at you. More than once, guys, which leads me to believe King recognizes that, yeah, it's this part is a little bumpy, it's probably not fun for these people getting all these random names thrown in their face and you don't get enough time or any character development to latch on to. It's a little tricky and problematic. And so I guess my big issue with the final 13 chapters, the last couple are okay, but about 
10 or so is rooted in the fact that the conflict wasn't engaging. There was a huge lull. Yes, Charlie's imprisoned and he's got to get free, he's got to get out, but really goes on for a very, very long time. And I was just eager for it to be done because I wasn't sticking to it. Radar the dog is gone from the narrative until pretty much the end of the novel, which isn't fun at all, especially since Radar has kind of been like this totem at the center of our story. The first 300 pages are all Radar, 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 and then all of a sudden, poof, she's gone. I'm not a fan of that. And also, all the characters we've met on the journey thus far are gone from the story. Dora, Claudia, Woody, Leah, all these people that we got to know when Charlie's in Empus bouncing around, they're all gone as well. And it's just Charlie in this very strange dungeon with Skeletor guards and a bunch of random Empus folks who have also been captured. There's not a lot of defining features to any of them to make sense of like, how old are you? What are you? Where are you? It's a little tricky. And yeah, guys, I just found myself heavy sighing and wanting it to end. And that's never a good thing in a King book, right? Like, that's very unusual. That's not common. So for me, I kind of wish that Radar would have stayed with Charlie or this imprisonment wouldn't have lasted as long as it did. And once more, my hope is that perhaps I'll feel differently in time and Act 3 will definitely appear stronger in a few years on a second read through but I found myself eager for it to be over, and that's not great. So let me know if you had a similar circumstance with this third act, with these last 13 chapters. I'm really interested in what happened. Like, what happened other than the disappearance of Radar, this very long, drawn-out imprisonment portion, something deflated. Our tire went flat, guys. Real flat, and I need to figure out why. My second topic for discussion is more concrete fairy tales. So what's really cool about fairy tale is that King distinctly references real life fairy tales, specifically from the Brothers Grimm. We've got the Goose Girl and Rumpelstiltskin. Those two are absolutely written by the Brothers Grimm. We also have outlined Jack and the Beanstalk. That one pops up right away where King compares the descent into Empus like a reverse beanstalk. Jack and the Beanstalk is an English folktale. I'm unaware of the exact author. Aside from those three, Maybe, maybe, maybe you could say we have a little bit of Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid in there, tiny bit, perhaps. That's a really dark fairy tale, by the way. If you've never read the original Little Mermaid, oh my gosh, get some tissues, it's brutal. But what I love in fairy tale is that Rumpelstiltskin is probably the strongest fairy tale that's referenced in the story. It definitely echoes throughout the narrative at the loudest volume, and I love it because Rumpelstiltskin is so dang good. The original is just dark and layered and super cool. Please check it out, Brothers Grimm. But Rumpelstiltskin directly correlates to two characters. The Goose Girl directly correlates to a character. And so I really latched onto that and loved it. But what I noticed is that King only did that with a few people. And then with one of the characters, we have a nursery rhyme, which I was a little stopped in my tracks about because nursery rhymes are not fairy tales, friends. Just as a reminder, hickory dickory dock, the mouse ran up the clock, 
The clock strikes one, the mouse ran down, hickory dickory dock. These are rhyming schemes. These are cute little story phrases for children to practice memorization, pronunciation, all that good stuff. Little Bo Peep has lost her sheep and she doesn't know where to find them. I actually don't remember how Little Bo Peep ends, but nursery rhymes, my guys. You remember? Remember being little? Hopefully you remember. Hopefully it was a nice time for you. Hopefully nursery rhymes were a part of your youth. But King throws us a character that's connected to a nursery rhyme, and I'm like, what? What are you doing? No. So here's my issue. I was hungry for more concrete fairy tales. I really wanted more of them because we have a lot of characters that seem to stem from the fairy tales I previously mentioned. For example, Rumpelstiltskin has like three or four characters connected to it. The Goose Girl, three or four characters connected to it. And I kind of didn't want that. I wanted more fairy tales. And so I guess my critique is that I feel King should have doubled down and just given us more fairy tales to latch onto. Or like the use it or lose it motto, none at all. Either scrap them all and make this journey into Empus a completely unique adventure or give us more Brothers Grimm. We could have had Rapunzel, we could have had Little Red Riding Hood, we could have had Snow White. Like, if you like Brothers Grimm, get it. Give us more, do more. And I say this because at the end of the novel, Charlie is 28 years old and I think he's pursuing a graduate degree, but his academic study is folklore, mythology, fairy tales, like he is into it. He's so passionate about fairy tales based on his experience. So I was a little hungry for more of them. We really only get a definitive three or four and I know I'm being greedy because here I am celebrating the beautiful world that King has built and I'm not denying that. I am not failing to recognize the beautiful, immense world he gave us with Empus and all the rad stuff, but he titled this novel Fairy Tale. <laughs> that is a tall order. So I was hungry to see more. My hypothesis is that King picked a few favorites, sprinkled them in, and then deviated toward making his own. So it's like half historical reference, half I'm creating my own unique thing. It works, but not really, because at the end, Charlie's like, I love fairy tales, this is my life. Going forward, I'm all about fairy tales. So this was a very defining time for him. We only have two to three, four max definitive fairy tales plugged into the story, so I, I'm stuck, Steve. I wanted more. More Brothers Grimm, more Hans Christian Andersen, Charles Perrault, or stuff that you like, and not nursery rhymes. Dora is a cobbler. She's not the old woman who lived in a shoe. That's a nursery rhyme. Mm -mm. So, yeah, I think there might have been a greater need for more research done, which maybe he just wasn't in the mood to do that. But in regards to whoever was editing this, I mean, how do you tell Steve to change something? I wouldn't be able to do it either, but I think it would have been so much fun if each of these characters would have had a direct fairy tale correlation. That would have been so charming and so magical. And 
it would have enhanced the magic of this story. Instead, I'm clinging on to one or two fairy tales and trying to glue people to it. For example, the goose girl, several people stuck to it. And I'm like, this isn't, no, only one person is the goose girl. Why does she need all these attachments when these individuals, who King does a great job of making them unique presences in the story, why can't they get their own fairy tale? So for being called fairy tale, we're a little light on the fairy tales, friends. And yeah, I know I sound greedy. I think it's valid. I think that he really had an opportunity to electrify this story with more, and he really doesn't. So eh, like I said, maybe over time, it won't matter. I won't care, all that good stuff. The Rumpelstiltskin, as I mentioned, it is the strongest, and I love it for that, but I'm stuck. I want more. <laughs> My third category, Peterkin and Christopher Polly. Why so similar? Okay, friends, I had a hard time with this. I was scouring my notes, rereading chapters, rereading passages, and I'm really, really confused. The character of Christopher Polly appears in the story before Charlie heads to Empus. He is described as a little person or someone who potentially could be a dwarf. He is very greedy and money hungry and is trying to rob Mr. Bowditch. There's a little bit of an altercation between he and Charlie. And then while in Empus, there's another dwarf-like character named Peterkin, who's a lot more mischievous, who likes torturing animals, causing a lot of mischief, and he erases the directions written by Mr. Bowditch way back several years prior to assist himself and Charlie to escape and navigate their way out. Peterkin erases it like a jerk. I was so confused, dear listeners, because both of those characters are connected to Rumpelstiltskin. They're really kind of direct parallels to it. It's strong, it's successful, but my question is if Christopher Polly and Peterkin are the same person. Meaning, is Christopher Polly a dwarf who's living in 2013, stalking Charlie and Mr. Bowditch's house, and then he makes his way down to Empus somehow and morphs into Peterkin and it's the same kind of opposing force? Or is it just two individuals sort of like, he, he has an avatar for this world and it's not Christopher Polly, it's like an evil twin or... Guys, I was so confused. It's just maybe I'm thinking too much about it, but honestly, think about it. Who is Peterkin and who is Christopher Polly? They are so, 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 so similar. So my confusion was wrapped up around the fact that they might be the same person because when Charlie references them, they kind of seem to be in the same vein or he lists their names next to each other. I just don't know. Are all the little people in this story directly connected to the evil Rumpelstiltskin? They all want to destroy Charlie's path somehow? Possible. I was just so confused. I was really struggling with that. And it's important because Christopher Polly is an integral part of the novel when it comes to the beginning of Charlie's hero's journey. 
Christopher Polly pops in right around step two, the call to conflict, it's a pretty big deal. Like, we gotta know. So I need a little bit of help, guys. Category three is my request for assistance. If you could please reach out and give me some page numbers, give me some quotes, help me understand the distinction between Christopher Polly and Peterkin. I'm confused with these characters. I really need some help. So those are my three areas of criticism, and I do have one question I want to pose to everybody. I think it's a good one. So I'm titling this question, Why Does Charlie Instantly Love Radar? So I'm coming to this question as a total animal lover. I love animals so much. Doesn't matter what kind, bird, bear, hair, fish, <laughs> for all my wizarding glass folks out there. But no, seriously, birds, cats, dogs, but I love them. I love animals. I love going to the zoo. I'm a huge fan. Here's the thing, though. I was not raised around dogs. I had cats my whole life. My mom thought dogs were too messy, so we didn't get one. I love them, but anytime I'm around dogs, I don't really have a natural way of behaving around them. I pet them, but I, I feel like I'm doing it wrong. I don't know if I can read them as well as other dog owners. When they jump up on me, I'm always like, oh, what do I do? So there's that. And I reference this because when I was reading about Charlie instantly loving Radar, a German shepherd, I thought about the fact that we don't have any background data on Charlie ever having a pet before. And I know this is very minor. It is very small. It is very minor. But think about it, friends. Charlie does not have any other siblings. And so we don't get mention of any other dogs, cats, birds. Like, how is he taking care of animals before? Because German Shepherds, in case you guys don't know, are very large dogs. When you are near a German Shepherd in real life, they are, at least for me, they are strong, awesome, amazing animals that are very intimidating. They are tall and stature. They are a big damn dog. And like, Charlie instantly falls in love with Radar, instantly. It helps that Charlie is 6'4". I get it, very cool. But I was hungry for more background character detail in regards to Charlie's relationship with animals. We never get mentioned that he owned pets, that he likes animals, that he likes dogs in particular. I think this would have enhanced the powerful bond between he and Radar. I think it would have enhanced the narrative a little bit. If he was little and the dog passed away, we've got strong connections with the loss of his mother and Charlie avoiding loss in general. That's what he strives to do at all times throughout the narrative. So I was just wondering, Bro, how did you fall in love with a giant, very intimidating dog like Radar? This is so minor, and it makes total sense that maybe their bond was just meant to be, and I have radical acceptance toward that. Absolutely. It's such a minor, minor little speed bump. But for me, if I'm faced with a very friendly German Shepherd, at first, I would be nervous as hell. I would just, yeah, like, I'm not around dogs. I like them a lot. I'm sure I would love Radar in time, but at first I would be pretty nervous. I would definitely, yeah, the size is intimidating. I'm a woman of 5'6". German Shepherds are big. They are police dogs, ladies and gentlemen. You know this. They are taught military commands. Like, these are strong, amazing dogs. And yeah, this is not a corgi. This is not a sweet little shih tzu or something that is cuddly and warm and cute. 
this is an intense dog and <laughs> I just kind of wondered why it was so instantaneous love and bonding and maybe it just is and that's all I'm gonna get and that's all there is to it and that's fine truly it is at the end of the day it is I'm okay I was just thinking about it for me it would take me some time to warm up to radar I'd be a little nervous once upon a time, I had to babysit for a kid who had two Great Danes and the parents didn't tell me and I almost pissed myself. I am 13 years old, I am not yet the 5'6 I am today, and two Great Danes come toward me. I wouldn't say I was traumatized and I don't think I'm afraid of dogs at all, I just don't have a natural way of interacting with them. I love them, I want to be their friend. Every single dog I meet I love and I always ask to pet them. But yeah, I am curious about why Charlie instantaneously loves Radar. Just a thought, just curious. <laughs> All right, my loves, before we get into my final thoughts in regards to fairy tale, let's recap some of my novel peccadillos. Number one, after chapter 19. Gets a little bumpy for me. Number two, more concrete fairy tales. And number three, Peterkin and Christopher Polly. Why so similar? And then of course, my question, why does Charlie instantly love Radar? All right, lovies, final thoughts. I think it's important that we consider the time this was written. I don't even want to think about 2020, but it is something we kind of have to do because King composed it toward the tail end of that terrible year. And I remember when I was teaching that year, I had been working with students who were absolutely ready to go to Hollywood and be TV writers for dark detective dramas. They wrote very dialogue-heavy, police procedural, really, really strong character pieces. And all of a sudden, those same students were giving me holy, fantastical, magical, whimsical dragons, kings, prince. I was like, what is going on? Wow. Complete left field, complete outliers. And it makes so much sense why. I think everybody and their mother wanted to just get out of here. And so when we would go into our own minds, we sought out anything we could to blast out of our own brains and go to someplace happy, magical, someplace that was a complete escape. Brand new country, new systems of government, new animal life crazy foods, crazy vegetation. It's pure imagination and freedom and safety. And so when I look at fairy tale, I see that. I see King wanting to get out of his reality and think of something sweet, whimsical, bright, shining, flowers, butterflies, castles, two moons, golden, it's magical, it's sweet, and it's hopeful. Most of all, a fairy tale is a hopeful narrative. It's a story about overcoming things and trying with all one's might to stop an inevitable outcome if we can, to do our very best to fight for those who don't have a voice. It's beautiful, it's really charming. So I say that because a lot of folks don't know what to do with this novel. They like it, they kind of don't. A lot of people have a lot of vitriolic stuff to say about it, but I don't view it like that at all. I see it as a fantastical escape into one's imagination. And I lean on that quote that I mentioned at the beginning where he wrote it to feel better. I love it for that. 
And like I said, hopefully with some time on the shelf, a little bit of time in the stew pot, maybe when I come back to this book, I'm not going to feel the way I feel and I'm just going to radically accept everything and love it all for what it is. And for the most part, I do. I think I just need to spend more time in that third act and maybe give it another chance, perhaps, 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 or I might feel the exact same, unknown. But when I look back at that time, I had so many fantasy drafts to sift through from people who never wrote fantasy before, and it was a fascinating thing, and I really, really get it. So that's what I think about when I think about fairy tale that this was a hopeful, fantastical escape so we could all think about something else for a little while. And that's all I got, my loves. We've reached the end, and if you've made it this far, bless you. Thank you so, so very much for hanging out with me. If you are new to the year of underrated Stephen King, it is so, so nice to have you. I hope you're having a good time. And if you haven't written into the show yet, please, please do. I'm at underratedsk at gmail. Feel free to say hi. Let me know where you're listening from. Let me know about your journey with King. And let me know what you think about fairy tale. Let me know if you have the answer to Christopher Polly and Peter King, because I'm stuck. I am struggling. I need some help there. Coming up on the podcast... Uh, (laughs) it's wild times, my friends. My original plan was to dive right into Salem's Lot. It's been a really long time since I've read that book, a good seven years at the minimum. I've only read it once, and that is my book club selection for the month of October. So that's the plan. I have to read that. Gotta get that ready. And my plan was to record an episode on Salem's Lot. However, I have blissfully been given an assignment from the brilliant beyond brilliant Matt and Scott from Kingslingers. I've been given a very special assignment that's a very tall order and that will take precedent over Salem's Lot. I don't really know what the next episode's gonna be, my loves. What I will say is that it's not gonna be an underrated king pick. It's gonna be a heavy hitter, which I'm already really nervous about. I know that Salem's Lot will happen. It will. We will have a Salem's Lot episode. We will. I just don't know when. So everything's up in the air. This has been the most topsy-turvy year I can recall. (laughs) All of my plans have just been vaporized with how this year has gone. It's a good thing. I'm not hating it. It's a good thing. But all my plans have just gone up in smoke and I'm at the whim of the four winds. So we'll see what happens. I hope to have some definitive answers for you soon on the next one, but let's just say whatever Kingslingers is working on now, that's what Kim C has to work on. Super excited, beyond thrilled, nervous as heck, good times. Okay, for reals now, kitties, I'm headed out. Once more, if you haven't already, please share the show with a friend that would really set my heart aflame, and please rate, review, and subscribe to the show because that would truly be awesome. I love you all so very much. Please stay safe, and we'll talk again soon. Bye-bye.